Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We start at the White House, where as we speak, the big four, McConnell, Schumer, Johnson and Jeffries, are in the Oval Office with President Biden. And what happens in that room could have major consequences, not just for this country and the ability to keep the government running, but for the entire world. Ukraine is in a dire position. President Zelensky told my colleague Caitlin Collins his country can't stop Putin's forces without more funding. And whether or not the U.S. comes to their aid is pretty much all up to Speaker Johnson at this point. CNN's Arlette Sines is at the White House. Arlette, I know they're in there. We heard uh, briefly from President Biden just a few minutes ago. What are you hearing from White House sources about what his goals are? Well, Dana, this meeting got underway just a few minutes ago. President Biden sitting down in the Oval Office with the top four congressional leaders. And it comes as there are a few consequential issues facing the president at this moment. The most pressing one being that government shutdown with that partial shutdown looming on Friday. Now, the president in his remarks ahead of the meeting said that he uh, it's Congress's responsibility to keep the government open. He said that a shutdown uh, would be uh, have significant impact on the economy if one were to take place. And ahead of the meeting, House Speaker Mike Johnson expressed some optimism over on Capitol Hill, uh, telling reporters that he does think they will be able to prevent a shutdown. So that is part of their discussion today. But the president is also using this meeting really to ratchet up the pressure on House Speaker Mike Johnson to pass additional assistance for Ukraine. The president has requested $60 billion in assistance for the war-torn country, as well as aid for Israel and Taiwan and some humanitarian assistance as well. The Senate has passed passed that measure. But so far, House Speaker Mike Johnson has refused to bring it up for a vote in the House. Now, to highlight the uh, stress that the president wants to put on this issue, in that meeting is also National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. And the president uh, warned that not getting this uh, aid to Ukraine will severely limit uh, the Ukrainian soldiers' abilities on the battlefield. Take a listen. I want to thank the leaders for being here today. we got a lot of work to do. we got to figure out how we're going to keep... Uh, Funding the government, which is an important problem, an important solution we need to find, and I think we can do that. And uh, and Ukraine, I think the need is urgent. I hope we can speak to that a little bit. And uh, I think the consequences of inaction every day in Ukraine are dire. 
So the president really expected to press the case, make his case for passing that additional assistance for Ukraine. So far, House Speaker Mike Johnson has shown no signs of budging, but you've heard the White House, you've heard Zelensky talk about how this is significantly hampering the Ukrainian soldiers on the battlefield. They're hoping to make that case once again today to Johnson in this Oval Office meeting. Thanks so much, Arlette. Uh, appreciate that reporting. Let's go to Capitol Hill down Pennsylvania Avenue. CNN's Manu Raju is there, of course. Manu, you heard the uh, Arlette talk about the fact that the speaker, as he was leaving, where you are heading to the White House, he said there isn't going to be a shutdown. We're going to avoid it. The obvious question is, how is he going to do that when his own conference is so fractured? Yeah, look, it's still an open question. In fact, negotiations are really at a perilous point. Things could go forward. They could actually pass legislation to keep part of the federal government open. That is still a possibility. Or it can all collapse. And there is just enormous frustration within the ranks. Remember, this is the, the fiscal year should have been funded on October 1st. But we are headed into the fourth possible government shutdown scare because time and time again, they've had to simply extend government funding for a short period of time. The first time they did that, of course, that led to the ouster of the then Speaker Kevin McCarthy after the revolt on his right flank. This, not, this time now, Mike Johnson has not indicated his preference on how to proceed. They have been squabbling behind the scenes between Johnson and Chuck Schumer about how to structure this funding legislation. And talking to Republicans and Democrats alike, they are sounding off about these talks. Listen. This was supposed to be done in September. I mean, this is now almost March. I mean, this is just ridiculous. They've had an agreement on the top line. They've had it since January. So I, this is why I voted against the last CR. They've just been kicking this can down the road. I can't believe that they didn't get work done over the, over the weekend. They've had months to do this stuff. I mean, I, my, I, my patience has run out. So Who's to blame? Leadership is to blame. Which leadership? Both sides? Well, all, yeah, of course. Yeah, all of them. Yeah, they're all to blame. I mean, at this, at this point, it's just it's absurd, I think. But it really, this boils down to, in large ways, Dana, a Republican-on-Republican Republican dispute. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, yesterday called for legislation to be passed to not include what he called poison pills. That is similar to the language of the Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer, even as Mike Johnson has been pushing for certain policy measures to be included in that funding legislation, which has led to the stalemate at this moment, and also Republican-on-Republican Republican division, of course, on the funding for Ukraine. Mitch McConnell, a fervent backer for more aid to Ukraine. Mike Johnson says that the border security needs to be dealt with first to the GOP's liking before he would greenlight more aid to Ukraine. So undoubtedly, that's going to be a point of contention behind closed doors. Whether anything changes, though, that's another question. Dana. Mano, it's so funny. Uh, Senator Hawley look, uh, is trying to sound frustrated, but he's almost, um, it's hard for him to hide <laughs> how much he's enjoying throwing the grenades from the sidelines. On both uh, the leadership of both parties. <laughs> as, most people, as most people do. Yeah. As, as you know, as most uh, people like to do. Absolutely. Manu, thank you so much for that reporting. I want to bring in my panel uh, to talk about all of this. CNN's Melanie Zanona, CNN's David Chalian, and CNN and Bloomberg's Nia Malika Henderson. Melanie, I'm going to start with you because you just came from Capitol Hill. You're going to go back yeah. <laughs> uh, right after this. I think the, um, the point that Manu made there, which is really critical when we're talking about the politics of all this, is that it is the Democrats right now who have all the leverage. They hold the cards uh, for lots of reasons, not the least of which is because um, Mike Johnson knows that it is not in the Republicans' political interest. Let's just stay on shutdown for a second, funding the government. It's not in the Republicans' political interest to have a government shutdown. Uh, and it, it is 
it is up to him to avoid it. And it's hard to do because there are many people in his conference who are totally fine with that. <laughs> right. Mike Johnson has almost zero leverage in this fight. And a huge reason is because he can't pass bills just with Republicans. They can't even pass basic procedural votes right now. So yes, he is going to need Democrats in order to get a bill to fund the government over the finish line. And that is really what you're seeing Johnson wrestling with right now. Does he cave to his right flank, which is pushing for a number of policy demands that Democrats would never go for? Some of them are pushing for a complete shutdown, which Johnson doesn't want to do. He wants to avoid that. That. But the question is, what does he do? It really is in his court. And I think it's important to remember that walking into the meeting today, he is on an island because you have McConnell, Schumer, Jeffries and Biden all aligned. They don't want to shut down. They want to have these clean funding bills and they also want more Ukraine aid. So Johnson really is on the island here. We'll see what he says at this meeting, but it's going to tell us a lot about how the rest of the week is going to play out. It's funny for me to think about like that Johnson's without the leverage here because he is the singular reason mm -hmm. that Ukraine aid has not passed yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a rare thing That's for true. a Speaker of the House to be singularly with the ability mm -hmm. to either move, like get aid for a foreign country through mm -hmm. or not. And he's chosen not to thus far. Mm -hmm. um, this, you know, he has a bipartisan majority in the House that will pass it. There was a bipartisan majority in the Senate that has passed it. Uh, but he has chosen and he could in this moment, sit in the Oval Office and say, I'll put that on the floor, it'll pass, it would be done. So I, I would argue he's exercising some leverage that he has in this moment because he has yet not chosen right. to give in to the forces on the right. I, 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 I totally hear what you're saying about Ukraine. I think the challenge is that there are two different actual bills. Yes. Um, and so funding the government is, is, on, is over here. And then the question of funding Ukraine and then Israel and others along with it is over here. And what you're saying is maybe he should say, you want this? Okay, give me this. Well, certainly it seems like there know. there is an opportunity there yeah. to combine these things in some way. Let me just uh, kind of go deeper into the challenge that Mike Johnson has with his uh, right flank on this issue. Chip Roy uh, put a series of threads on, on Twitter uh, or X, whatever it's called now, uh, saying, the House GOP promised to secure the border and to cut funding for Biden's race, uh, radical, progressive Democratic agenda. This week, government funding expires. What's the status? Short answer, no plan to fight. Here's the long, longer form of the status update. No security, no funding. After passing three continuing resolutions for five months at Pelosi funding levels without promising promises to fight. The NDAA is token DEI policy wins. And he goes on and on and on. Fight. Fight is what they want Mike Johnson to do. Yeah. And listen, Chip Roy has been sounding off on Mike Johnson for months and months. He is not happy. He is not happy with the fact that nothing has gotten done that the right flank would like uh, him to do. You know, the problem is that the right flank is still a minority. Mike Johnson has a very, very slim majority there, even slimmer now with Tom Swasey uh, there. So all they can do at this point is kind of fume. Add to that mix sort of Donald Trump being the puppet master over everything and Mike Johnson obviously uh, wanting to please Donald Trump. So it is a complicated uh, stew and a mess for the country, this sort of inaction, this ability to come together. And there is a, a sort of ignoring of a reality, right, that they have to work with Democrats. We all know how this is ultimately going to end. It's going to be some sort of bipartisan bill. The right is likely not going to win 
again, and Chip Roy is going to go on X and fume some more. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. And good night. No, I'm kidding. Um, Dave Joyce, who uh, tends to be a voice of, um, of, of reason, mm-hmm. he, he hopes, inside his conference, uh, said the following. He said, it's t- uh, about his uh, uh, conference, it's tilted further right and not necessarily in a conservative way, but more in an obstructionist way. You know, because you claim that you're fighting for people, but what have you really accomplished? I think that really um, boils down the, um, the dynamic right now inside the Republican conference. Because it's one thing to espouse conservative principles, which the Dave Joyce's of the world absolutely do. Right. I mean, he's a, he's a true conservative. But the other question is whether or not you're taking those conservative principles to another level, which is my job here isn't necessarily to get things done to govern. My job is to obstruct anything that doesn't uh, comport with what we believe in. You're absolutely right. The disputes we are seeing on Capitol Hill in the Republican Party are not about policy. It really is about tactics. It's about style. It's about this group of lawmakers that want to remake the party in the image of Donald Trump. And what you're seeing is the incentive structure for a lot of these members is to become sort of celebrities and to raise money. And it's not to govern necessarily. In fact, they might actually like being in the minority better because it's a lot easier to just sit there and say they want to vote against everything the other party is doing. And so that is really what's causing a lot of frustration between the Joyce, the Dave Joyce wing of the party, which are pragmatists, they want to govern, they want to get things done, and then you know the Bob Good wing of the party, who views compromise as such a dirty word in Washington, despite it being a divided government right now. And, and to the point about being in the minority or the majority, this could be a determining factor. When I say this, I'm, I'm talking about the ability to govern or the perception of chaos. Because voters say, will weigh in on that well, that's, in November. Well, so let's just yeah. take immigration, which I know is not on the table right now, but as an example, what happened uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and uh, the question, Mammoth did a, a poll and asked the question about who's to blame with the bipartisan bill failing. Congressional Republicans, 36 percent, Dems at 13 percent and both parties, 48. But if you're looking at the difference between the two parties, they blame the Republicans. But but this goes back to the incentive structure that you said, raise money and be famous and win primaries, not general elections. I mean, that's what it comes down to as well. Except with the, well, we can get into this another time, with the (laughs) gerrymandered House of Representatives, but the primaries effectively are the general election, which leads us to where we are with the chaotic (laughs) House of Representatives. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) The vote is on in Michigan. The big story. How divided are the Democrats? How many will vote uncommitted instead of Biden because of the war in Gaza? We're live on the trail after a quick break. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. 
So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Why did you vote on committee? I just wanted to. Against the, the issues of the administration. Republican. And who did you vote for? Uh, that's my business. I think they're the best person for the job. Well... Best of the worst. Can you tell me why you voted for the person you voted for then? Because of the lawlessness, the the border, the inflation, just everything's a mess. Just not impressed with how things are going right now. So I think he did a good job four years ago. He was one of the most peaceful presidents in the sense that we had like no major wars, walked right into North Korea and like handled that. Those are voters who are at the polls today in Michigan. There's not much suspense over who will win. Donald Trump and Joe Biden both have uh, massive favorites. But we are going to learn a lot about their strengths and weaknesses in this pivotal state. Biden won Michigan in the 2020 general election by three percentage points, putting it back in the blue column after Trump won in 2016. Today, we're watching to see how many Democrats express their frustration with the president over many things, including the war in Gaza, by voting for uncommitted, which is also on the ballot. CNN's Omar Jimenez joins us live from Waterford, Michigan. Um, It doesn't look like uh, the voters are beating down the the doors of that polling place to get to... uh, to get to that gym there, but I, I'm, I'm sure that you are going to see a stream of voters at some point today. Maybe you already have. Look, that's where we're hoping. It, it's <laughs> lunchtime. Maybe they'll come in after getting a nice meal. That's that's the optimist in me right now. But what's interesting <laughs> about Michigan is that this is really the first time they've had, the first cycle, they've had early in-person voting. You tack that onto absentee ballots that have already uh, been returned, and they've gotten over a million votes already, which when you look at the total turnout they got in 2020, it was just over 2 million. So a large proportion of this voting base has already come and made their voices heard. Yes, I'm not going to I'll spare you the full walk and talk here uh, since obviously we've got a little bit of an absence of voters right now. They've streamed in over the course of today. And you mentioned, look, there's no surprises necessarily on who is expected to win on the Democratic primary side and on the Republican primary side. But a lot of general election clues that we could get based on what voters are saying over the course of today. We just talked to one Biden voter a little bit earlier who said he is voting Biden because he wants to return decency back to the White House. Another Trump voter we spoke to said he doesn't necessarily think Trump is a decent person, but likes the policies that he's bringing and wants to see him back in the White House. So it'll be interesting to see some of that dynamic. But of course, also within the Democratic side of things, a large push to vote uncommitted instead of voting for Joe Biden, especially from the Arab American community here in Michigan, which is the largest community of any state in the country over his handling of the war in Israel and Gaza. Take a listen to Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib um, about what she is telling folks to do on this primary day. We must protect our democracy. We must make sure that our government is about us, about the people. When 74% of Democrats in Michigan support a ceasefire, yet President Biden is not hearing us, this is the way we can use our democracy to say, listen, 
And as of now, they say that their goal is to just get 10,000 uncommitted votes, though even in previous times without a campaign like this, we have seen more uncommitted votes. So we'll see what that tally ends up being. And remember, in Michigan, it is an open primary. Anybody can vote for anyone. You just have to request a Democratic ballot or a Republican ballot when you actually get to a polling location like this. All right, Omar, listen, if it's days like this, maybe you can get them to lower the basketball hoops. You can show them how it was done as a Northwestern Wildcat. I know, I get some shots up here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're not that far from Northwestern in Michigan, just a little bit up the road north. Uh, thank yeah, you so much. Midwest, Big Ten country. There you go. Uh, Omar, thanks so much for that reporting. And with the political perils of his support for Israel playing out in Michigan, as Omar Bush is talking about, President Biden is presenting a rosy outlook on his administration's efforts to negotiate a temporary ceasefire and hostage deal. Well, I hope by the beginning of the weekend, I mean, the end of the weekend, at least my, my, my national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. An Israeli official tells CNN they were, quote, surprised by those remarks. My panel is back now. Um, David Chalian, the use of the word ceasefire mm. there, and he's been using it more and more, is no accident. Whether or not it's actually going to happen on Monday, the fact that he's using that word, which we heard Rashida Tlaib use, and it has become the word of the progressive left, of course, they want the action, too. But that's relatively new, and it's not... Yeah, and what he's talking about is a temporary ceasefire. I know, but he didn't right? use the word No, no, temporary. he doesn't. No, no, I know. But you are right. If you look at the language going back to almost to October 7th, mm -hmm. you'll remember that first trip he took to Israel and the Netanyahu hug and embrace and all that, but also in his remarks that day from Israel... Uh, was talking about a reminder of America's experience in 9-11 and not overreacting. Uh, that, was, that was just like one little cautionary note early on, and we didn't hear a lot of that again for a while. You're right to note a change in rhetoric. We saw it when he went uh, the day of the Herb Report, when he had that press conference in the White House. He talked about the Israeli uh, forces being over the top in their reaction over the top. And then in fundraisers, he started saying uh, about a ceasefire getting into place, all because simultaneously, as you watch Biden, the pressure has been mounting on him from inside his own party with key pieces of his yep. coalition, young people, progressives, obviously Arab Americans in a state like Michigan. Um, this issue has presented to him in a very finite place that is a major battleground, a real potential political problem. Yeah, I want you to hear what Debbie Stabenow, who is, um, she's leaving, she's uh, retiring from her seat. She's represented Michigan for a very long time. She's also a member of the Democratic leadership. Listen to what she told Casey Hunt this morning about the challenges there. There's a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. um, we need to hear that. We need to understand that. We need to listen. It's incredibly important that the Biden administration is able to get not only a temporary ceasefire, but bring hostages home and be able to proceed to actually get real peace. There's a lot of important work and listening and results. It's not just listening. It's getting results. And so that's got to happen. 
Yeah, listen, the folks on the ground in Michigan, the Arab American community, they feel this viscerally. Notable that she used the word pain because that is what they're experiencing. A lot of these folks have family over there. They hadn't heard from their family uh, in weeks and weeks and weeks. I had a colleague who was, who was there over the last couple of days and that's what she was hearing. And that is what is being channeled into this uncommitted uh, vote. It's very, very organized. We've seen this in the past, but I don't think we've seen it to this level that is backed by a singular sort of feeling, a feeling of discontent around a, a policy uh, that they don't think is right. You do see Biden, as as David said, moving on this issue. And right? I think last night he was on with Seth, Seth Meyers talking about Israel and Netanyahu being at the risk of losing the world's yeah. support because of the way they're prosecuting uh, this war. We will see what happens tonight in terms of how many uncommitted votes are against Joe Biden. And we'll also look at his movement. Listen, this is what protest movements are designed to do. They're designed to be outsiders moving a policy, uh, moving rhetoric as well. And that's what we've seen yeah. so far. And, and, you know, Jonah Goldberg was on the show yesterday noting that the pain that they're talking about that uh, Arab Americans are feeling, um, there's also pain uh, among other key constituencies in Michigan and elsewhere, Jewish voters and also some evangelical voters who are wholeheartedly uh, pro-Israel. You mentioned the uncommitted vote. I think the context going into tonight's voting is, and I'm just channeling him right now, <laughs> is really important uh, to say that, yes, this is an effort to get people to vote uncommitted, which is actually on the ballot. You can check the box or pull the lever for uncommitted versus um, Joe Biden. It's, it has happened before without right. these big efforts. Uh, Barack Obama uh, he got a, there were 174,000 uh, total votes and there was uh, 21,000 uncommitted uh, when he was on the ballot and there was no such effort. So that just gives a little bit of context going into what we're going to see tonight. Yeah. And the leaders of this effort are setting the bar pretty low by those standards because they said they're trying to get right. They're trying to get, I think, 10,000 uncommitted votes was what they said. But look, it's not just the number of votes. It's where they're coming from. That's something else the White House is going to be looking at very closely. They're looking at places like Dearborn, mm -hmm. like Detroit. They're looking at black voters. They're looking at suburban women. They're looking at union workers, all key pieces of Biden's coalition. And they're going to look at tonight's results and see how much work he has to do come November. But it's also the same for Donald Trump. And I know we'll get into that. But both of them are going to have a very better look after yeah. tonight at what it's going to be like in just yeah, November. Just like we did in South Carolina. OK, before we go, we're going to tell our viewers something that you flagged to me, David Chalian. <laughs> and that is now an inside politics fun fact. Today is Chelsea Clinton's 44th birthday. What makes that such a fun fact? That's how old her mother was when her father, Bill Clinton, began running for president. David and I feel very old. <laughs> don't rope me in. I don't know who to buy you guys are. I don't want to be alone. I know, you don't count. And Melanie, you just stay right over there. From RFK Jr. to Cornell West, could third party presidential candidates tip the 2024 scales? We will ask Professor West himself up next. News this morning on the Robert F. Kennedy campaign. A super PAC supporting him says they've gathered enough signatures to get him on the ballot in two pivotal battleground states, Arizona and Georgia. Those signatures still need to be validated and could face court challenges. But so far, he's only confirmed to be on the ballot in one state, Utah. My next guest is another third-party candidate trying to get on as many ballots as he can. Professor Cornell West joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. Sir, I want to start with Michigan, which is voting today. 
Some Democrats who are frustrated with uh, President Biden's response to the Israel-Gaza war, they're urging residents to vote uncommitted, effectively against the president. Now, yesterday he announced progress in a deal for a temporary ceasefire in exchange for a hostage release. Should that help, never mind what it means for the region, which is the most important, but just on the raw politics of it, should that help the president politically? Well, we shall see. But I think part of the problem is we can't reduce what's going on in Gaza to some kind of electoral political strategy. I mean, we've seen the example of our dear brother Aaron Bushnell. It, when he set himself on fire and killed himself, what was he saying? These are moral issues and moral causes. These are not just brands and strategies and tactics. And as you know, Sister Dana, so much American politics is about strategy and tactic. These are deeply moral and spiritual issues having to do with arbitrary power being used. And when I hear Sister Rashida say, well, Biden is not hearing us. No, Biden is the enabling the killing of us. That's what's taking place here. And so you can imagine it. my Arab brothers and sisters in Dearborn and other places are saying, we're not just pieces to be moved on a chessboard. These are our families. This is mama and daddy. This is grandmama and granddaddy. It reminds me in some ways of the, uh, the rabbis who marched in the early 40s, led by the great Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and FDR wouldn't even come out of the White House. He sent Henry Wallace, and those rabbis were sitting there saying, look, massacres are taking place, war crimes are taking place, crimes against humanity, genocide is taking mm -hmm. place. What did the White House do in the early 40s? Nothing at all, hardly. Why? Because it was an electro-political issue. The Jewish Professor vote didn't mean X. The Jewish vote didn't mean Y. These are human beings, and America is enabling the killing of them. So it is now in 2024. Where is the space for truth, justice, love in a moment Professor of electoral politics and, 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 and barbarity? That's the question. Professor me. West, what about um, the other side of the argument? Uh, not, not that there's any appropriate side to the killing of innocent civilians. We should just say that flatly. But when it comes to absolutely when it comes to to war and retaliatory war, which is what this is, uh, for lots of reasons, the most the biggest is what Hamas did, the terror attack inside of Israel, but also currently the hostages who are still there. Do you think that there is, first of all, on the hostages, but second of all, just on uh, Hamas, is there do you believe in the idea of eradicating a terrorist group like Hamas, which did such barbaric things to innocent civilians? Well, one, I mean, you and I know that a Jewish life has exactly the same value as a Palestinian life. A Palestinian baby has the same value as a Jewish baby. Mm -hmm. The question is, how do you get at the roots of it? Anytime you kill an innocent person, that is a crime against humanity. Did Hamas commit war crimes? Absolutely. Murder is murder. But at the same time, you and I also know that you, the root of what we're talking about here is an ugly occupation, is an embargo and siege, and then we can call for a ceasefire. So in calling for a ceasefire, it ought to be on the way to get at the roots of the problem, which is the ending of an occupation, so that you can then have forms of resistance that don't have to take the form of killing innocent people. Now, I believe in just war. Combatants can kill combatants. I'm not like Martin Luther King. I'm not a pacifist. But combatants must not kill civilians or innocent people, no matter who it, it is, IDF or Hamas. But the, but the problem is, if you're going to call Hamas a terrorist group, 
and the IDF is killing innocent people, they're terrorists too. If American soldiers kill innocent people, they're terrorists too. We have to be morally consistent in our language, in our deeds. And this is what I pull from Hebrew and, scripture. This is what I pull from following a Palestinian Jew named Jesus. And, and, and the IDF uh, argument, you heard Benjamin Netanyahu uh, on Sunday arguing wholeheartedly that uh, the big difference is that Hamas went out and sought out civilians. What, ID, what the IDF is doing is trying to get rid of Hamas and the civilians are unfortunately uh, getting killed in the crossfire. I I'm, not, I'm not equating the two in terms of life as a life, but the argument is that Hamas sought right. out civilians and the IDF is not. Well, I mean, the difference there would be historically over the last 75 years, we've got overwhelming evidence that the IDF has killed innocent people and, and, and is killing innocent children right now, and each one of those children are not a shield of a Hamas soldier. So that, that the language, yeah. on the one hand, goes in one direction, the action goes in another direction. But the crucial thing is we've got to keep the moral and spiritual mm -hmm. issues at the center. And that's one of the problems okay. with American politics I these days. It's all about money. It's all about status and spectacle. What about the human beings who are suffering, so be they mass incarcerated in ghettos or, or, or barrios or poor whites, or be they in Gaza, or be they frightened in other parts of the world. Let's turn, to make a hard turn now, to politics, since you mentioned it. Uh, we're talking about you as a candidate. You're running as, a, as an independent candidate, independent of the parties you were talking about. You're currently on the ballot in three yes. states, Alaska, Oregon, South Carolina. Uh, you told NBC News that your goal was to be on the ballot in 15 states by March. March starts Friday. Um, are you going to fall short of that goal? How close are you? Oh, I said the Ides of March. It was the Ides of March. By mid-March, we should be on at least 15 states because we've got the low-hanging fruit in March 1. You're absolutely right. Allows us to move into the states. But I thank the Aurora Party in Alaska. I thank the Progressive Party in Oregon. I thank the United Citizens Party in South Carolina. And it's fascinating already because you imagine, you know, Alaska in many ways is like the National Hockey League in not, as opposed to the National Basketball Association. It's a vanilla place. They come strong. Oregon, similarly so. All black party in South Carolina with my brothers, the Nellum brothers there with the United Citizens Party. We are on the move. It is a multiracial, multi-gendered, multi-religious movement rooted in truth, justice, and love. Are uh -huh. you are you going to get on the ballot in any of the, the, the crucial battleground states? Do you think you'll make it? I think we will, though. Which one? My dear sister. We're going to surprise the world. We're going to shake up the world. We, 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 Michigan, Arizona, we're going to try to get on the state in Texas and California. Well, California with the Peace and Freedom Party has already been very kind. I'm part of that nominating process. But we're shooting for the toughest ones, as you know, in New York and Texas and California. But with now, I, I, I applaud Brother Kennedy getting on the, the ballot in Arizona. We, we still got more states than Brother RFKJR, I'm telling you. And he's got the same views on Gaza as Biden does. My God, my God. And he's supporting COINTELPRO and wiretapping Martin Luther King Jr. I say, come on, Brother Kennedy. What are you talking about here? We, we've got a chance to really show how our vision, our commitment to virtues, our commitment to values are distinct from not just RFKJR, but also the two parties 
Trump and Biden. Seventy percent of our fellow citizens say they don't want Biden or Trump. My God, mm. what an unprecedented moment for independent candidates. Well, we will see. Hey, keep us posted and let us know when you uh, when you get the signatures that you are seeking to get on those ballots, particularly those swing states like Michigan and Arizona. Thanks so much for coming on, Professor West. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Indeed, stay strong. Up soon, a surprise hearing in Fulton County, Georgia. Will it lead to DA Fannie Willis, Fannie Willis rather, being disqualified from the Trump election subversion case? Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Coming up today at 2 p.m., a little more than an hour from now, a last-minute hearing in the effort to disqualify Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis from the Georgia election subversion case. The judge has ordered a key witness to take the stand again to tell the court what he knows about the romantic relationship between Willis and Nathan Wade, her top prosecutor in the case. The first time around, Terrence Bradley declined to answer certain questions, citing attorney-client privilege as Wade's divorce lawyer. CNN's Nick Valencia is in Atlanta. Nick, get us up to speed. Yeah, hey there, Dana. The judge is making Terrence Bradley get back on the stand after he determined that some of the questions that Bradley refused to answer at a hearing just about two weeks ago were not protected by attorney-client privilege. And they met yesterday behind closed doors to talk about those privilege issues. And that's when the judge determined that Bradley may have been misinterpreting privilege the whole time. He signaled as much during that hearing. Let's remind our viewers here. A factual scenario that to my mind, I don't see how it relates to privilege at all. And so now I'm left wondering if Mr. Bradley has been properly interpreting privilege this entire time. And I, I think the only way I can cure that is by having that in-camera conversation with him. So defense attorneys will get another crack at Bradley. Ashley Merchant, the defense attorney that first leveled these allegations against Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis, says that she believes Bradley can prove that Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis were lying on the stand as to when their relationship began. But if you remember last time, Bradley wasn't entirely forthcoming during the uh, cross-examination by Merchant. We'll be looking to see what limitations Judge Scott McAfee puts on any questioning, if at all, and what he will ultimately allow into evidence. Dana? And Nick, we are learning that Willis and another top prosecutor received harassing phone calls after cell phone records were leaked. What's that about? That's right. Some, uh, a legal filing made its way to a far-right social media uh, account, and the unredacted phone number of the Fulton County District Attorney was on that unredacted filing. They posted it, and over the weekend, both Willis and Nathan Wade received a slew of harassing phone calls, and it really underscores the safety issues that they've been dealing with here the whole time. Willis uh, you know, didn't go into any details. We did reach out to the Fulton County District Attorney's Office to respond to this. They did not comment. But as I mentioned, uh, Dana, it just really underscores the safety and the emotion surrounding the drama of this case. Dana. A drama is an understatement. <laughs> Thank you so much. Appreciate that reporting. <laughs>
Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.